Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. And those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. Today is International Women's Day 2021. It is a global celebration of the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. It is also a day to remember that much inequity still exists among the genders, and this last year has been quite destructive to uh, efforts to bring such equity to the workplace. Um, Today's discussion is to raise awareness around some of the issues that women face in the workplace, including imposter syndrome and microaggressions towards women. We are very lucky to have not one, but two organizational psychologists with us today uh, from Gallagher Edge, an organization dedicated to helping executives and other professionals grapple with challenges in the workplace. First, we have Dr. Laura Gallagher, who has worked in the field of professional and personal development since 2005. Laura is an organizational psychologist, speaker, facilitator, and executive coach. She is the founder and CEO of Gallagher Edge, which she started in 2013 and rebranded in 2018. Laura is an expert teacher, trainer, speaker, and consultant, particularly in the concepts of self-awareness, accountability, trust building, and team cohesion. We also have with us today Dr. Stephanie Lopez, an organizational psychologist and executive coach who is an expert in the application of the science of psychology to organizations. Her passion lies in leadership, development, and team cohesion. Stephanie specifically helps leaders become more authentic and self-aware, which enables greater resilience, stamina, and flexibility in the face of demanding and difficult leadership challenges. Laura, Stephanie, thank you so much both for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. So so great to be here. You are most welcome. It is my pleasure. Um, let's just jump right in. Uh, first, I just I think a lot of people are probably aware, but why don't we just go over the concept of imposter syndrome and and what what relation does that have to women in the workplace? Feel free to take turns. Yeah, we'll probably both jump in and dive in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely. and I can start with, um, you know, our, our definition of imposter syndrome, which is it's a, a psychological pattern where an individual is doubting their accomplishments and feels this persistent internal fear of being exposed as a fraud. Hmm. So that's how, how we define it, how we look at it. And um, it's, it's really, really common. So that's one of the first things that I want everyone to, to know. So as we're talking about this, if it feels like, oh, yeah, I've had that, you're not alone. <laughs> Some of the most famous people that um, have experienced this include Maya Angelou, Serena Williams, Tom Hanks, like big names, people that you know we feel very impressed with when we look at them, at least I feel impressed with them. And uh, they also have experienced some of these fears and doubts about themselves. Yeah. And it tends to like disproportionately affect high achievers too, that, you know, find it difficult to accept their accomplishments. Yeah. And there's this, this big desire for um, comparison. So I think a lot of people, you know, like what Dr. Lopez is saying, a lot of people that are very high achievers are constantly moving the bar for themselves. And while comparison can be useful and it has its roots in um, evolution, you know, we used to compare ourselves to one another as human beings as a means to decide, you know, am I adding enough value to my tribe? Like, is my tribe going to keep me around? You know, because that was really important and it was useful to stay a part of the tribe because it often meant the difference between life and death. And so it's this very like evolutionary thing that we do. 
as humans is, is this comparison. And we still do it today, even though it doesn't add the same value. And in fact, it can significantly detract from how we show up in the world. And then I think mm-hmm. this is probably where you can say more, um, Stephanie, if you'd like to, but I think that that comparison tendency feels even even tougher for women than it does for men. Yeah, yeah, that, that chronic self-doubt. And one thing that I love to re- remind in particular my clients that are women is that comparison um, is one of the most common natural things that our brain does automatically. So that's, I'm just saying that in a little bit of a different way that than Laura does, because I, I find that people are like, oh, something, something's wrong with me. Like, why do I keep on comparing and doubting myself? And it's like, are, are you human? Yes. Okay, great. You're normal. <laughs> and there's stuff that we can do mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, there's something I think specifically, I mean, first of all, I've definitely felt that all of that like tons of times. Some, often before these interviews, I'm like, I'm just some guy sitting in my apartment. You know, what do I know? Um, and But yet somehow it always works out. So that's my first yeah. clue that maybe there's something going on. Um, yes. The other thing is that the workplace really invites these things. It's a hierarchical, I mean, unless you're in some really like cutting edge, you know, startup, they're always hierarchical societies, you know, you have, you're always trying to move up. You don't want to stagnate. You want to get, get better. Um, and there's a lot of pressure, I think, just sort of built into the system. So then you have people that are your colleagues, maybe achieving when you're not achieving. It can be really hard. I think it can be really hard to, to navigate those waters just as a baseline. And then I would like to get a little bit more into what it is, if possible, that makes this environment more difficult for women, if that's the, if that's the way to say it. Yeah. I mean, the simplest thing is that it's really the patriarchy. And I think, you know, you were pulling on this, Jim, when you were talking about the system, right? So, you know, to build on Stephanie's point around comparison, the the patriarchy has historically pitted women against each other. I mean, when you look at the the span of history, it's only very recently that women have been working in any any kind of capacity close to what men have. And so, you know, if I was to tell you, for example, that there is a Fortune 500 company and the board is made up entirely of women, that would be like, what? Whoa. Like, My yeah, that would be luck. like uh, this crazy thing. But if I was to tell you that there's a Fortune 500 company that has a a board filled with men, you'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. So, Mm. (laughs) right. And so the (laughs) fact that that's like one is mind blowing, another one is like, yeah, well, that's the way it goes. You know, that's just a symptom of the patriarchy. And, and I think that there's genuinely a fear for a lot of people just because it's unfamiliar. The idea of having like an all female board was like, would be like, whoa, because we've just not seen that before. And so, and I think it's fair to say that almost everybody would have at least a little bit of an initial like, wow, that is remarkable. And that just shows that we are living in the patriarchy. So like a fish swimming in water, yes. unless we stop to reflect on the water that we're swimming in, we may not even realize it. So we all are, this sounds too strong, maybe we're victims of the patriarchy. We're all living in the patriarchy. And so if we can, yeah. you know, do what we can to remove blame from it and just sort of recognize what is. And then, you know, like Stephanie was saying, like work towards solutions around it. I think that's great. So 
I think the comparison piece has been tougher for women because there's these ideas of like, you know, well, we've got one seat for a woman we've got to get some female representation. And so we just sort of continue to put women in a position where they feel like they're actually competing internally with one another and not necessarily equally across the board. Um, And so that's, that's one of the biggest contributors that I see. I love that metaphor too about like a fish in water and we have to like pause long enough to notice that. Um, yeah. When we keep on just going, going at typical pace and not like pausing to notice what's going on around us and what the story is that we're making up about it. Like, okay, I don't feel confident that's associated of course with imposter syndrome. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm not competent. It's just self doubt and I can rewrite those stories. Yeah. I think it's really useful you know, you're talking about these big, these big names to know that everybody doubts themselves. I mean, Mm -hmm. just as destructive, and I want to talk about that in a little while, as destructive as it can be to doubt yourself all the time. I feel like it can also, there's not that many people out there that don't experience that. And I feel like they're even more destructive, but that's not necessarily here nor there. It's important to have that moment sometimes to look inside and say, what am I doing? Am I the right, am I in the right position? That reflection can be really powerful, but you can see how easy, easily it can get in your way. You know, and part of what I want to talk about there is sort of the invisible nature of self-limitation. You know, I think it was, I think it was with you, Laura, we were talking about microaggressions um, a few months ago, six months, eight months ago. And what I learned from that lesson was how easy it is for people to give up you know, when, when they're meeting certain challenges or they have certain things get in their way, you know, they might try a a, a corrective behavior. Like let's say a woman is being talked over in a meeting and she might Mm -hmm. speak up for herself the first time and get shot down and then learn, well, there's no point in doing that again. So I wanted to talk about that specific thing, the, the idea of, of self-limitation within imposter syndrome and, and how invisible it is. Yeah. So, I mean, I think self-limitations prevent us from achieving our full potential. I absolutely love the quote, you know, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And I think Henry Ford said that. Um, So the, the moment that we believe that we can't achieve something or get something that we want, we immediately like put a wall up from us ever achieving that. So it's that mindset of, okay, it didn't work this way and I can find new tools or new ways to approach something to get what I really want to, you know, feel true to myself or to be authentic. Um, That's so important to keep in the back of our minds um, to have that mindset. Laura, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Well, and because I, I actually want to, I want to pull on that word invisible because I think that that's important. Um, sure. I feel like there's really two key ways that these self-limitations can be really invisible because I, I love the quote that you're saying, Stephanie, and it becomes a moment of self-awareness in and of itself for somebody to realize that it's a belief and a story that they're telling themselves rather than simply a fact, mm. you know, yes. and I, I'm going to go back again, actually, to like the fish and water metaphor, right? There are so many ways that we are programmed to just believe that it's a fact, that I cannot do something or that this is not available to me. Mm-hmm. You know, lack of representation, for example, where we just, it just doesn't even seem possible because why well, I've never seen mm-hmm. that before. And so 
there's a moment of self-awareness where the self-limitation can first become visible to that person who's feeling it. And that's when they're able to see, oh, shoot, that's just a story in my head, you know? And that's a very cool moment when they can realize that because like Stephanie's saying, they can change that story. It's, you know, right. that's the only thing that we're ever responding to. So that's one way that I think limitations, self-limitations are invisible. And then the other, the other way is it comes back to this idea of fearing that we're the only one that mm. feels this way. Everybody else mm-hmm. is so confident. You know, I'm the only one that doubts myself. Man, why can't, why can't I be confident like them? And then you find out that the people that project the most confidence have the same self-talk at times. You know, they're victim to the same like, oh my God, do I know what I'm doing? And so vulnerability is, I think, another beautiful antidote to mm. that. When we can talk about this and realize yes. that it's a shared experience. I know, and I've had moments where I look up to somebody and I just, I'm like, wow, I would love to be more like that. And then when they can express past failures, they talk about current vulnerabilities, things that they're going through. And I'll feel like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And then I suddenly feel so connected to them. And I feel like I'm not alone anymore. And I realize these self-limitations and these self-doubts that I have actually don't have to stop me from, from doing awesome things because look what she did, you know? Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think vulnerability is one of those things that's really difficult for, I think people in general, but especially employers, you know, because it's a hierarchical type organization, most organizations, there's this b- baked in concept, like the person above you like has to know what they're doing in order for you to be able to <laughs> succeed. And, and if they don't, I mean, that's a really uncomfortable position to be in. So you want to project strength as a leader. And that means, unfortunately, I think the instinct is to say, okay, that means don't be vulnerable. Don't tell people that I have a weakness or a flaw. And it's just unrealistic. I mean, it just, it doesn't really exist. That's no, no such thing. Um, I, and I just see the, the tendency for organizations to say, okay, well, let's not talk about our personal lives at work. Let's not, let's not connect mm-hmm. to each other in a way where we might talk about our challenges uh, especially if they're outside of work. Let's just, you know, forget all that stuff, show up to work, you know, sit down, shut up and do your work and go home. I, I know mm-hmm. it's changing, but not quickly enough. We're, we're trying to change it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in inviting the, inviting yeah. the conversation around vulnerability and, and looking at it as a strength, you know, so I have this really goofy metaphor that I use to, to highlight how vulnerability is strength. So imagine, you know, and forgive the the violence and this little hypothetical metaphor, but imagine that, and we'll just, you know, it's patriarchy, right? Let's go with two dudes. Two dudes are like, oh, we're going to have a fist fight in the parking lot later, you know? So it's like, oh, this is a show of strength. And, you know, later comes around and one of them shows up and then the other one shows up wearing sort of like a full suit of armor, like clanking. You know, like as he approaches the fist fight, are you going to look at that one that's all armored up and be like, oh, he's so strong? Are you going to look at him like, uh, okay, he's clearly not strong. He's so afraid to be vulnerable that he has just armored up. And so the same thing happens for us psychologically and emotionally when we tell ourselves that vulnerability is weak, then that means that we're going to hide our vulnerability, which actually is weakness. And so it it can feel very counterintuitive, but we often invite leaders to reflect on moments that have been really meaningful 
for them in their careers. And it's usually about a leader that was open and vulnerable with them and they can see that and they start to change their story and lean into it more. What we're talking about here, I feel like we have two sides we really have to look at. We have to look at how employers can position themselves to to be vulnerable, to understand this automatic hierarchy that's built in their organization and, and sort of the downsides and understand that some of their, many of their employees might be, might be feeling this way. But at the same time, we also need to talk about those professionals that want to, want to move up. You know, a lot of HR people are women. Um, it's like 70% of, of our audience, you know, mm-hmm. and they're all professionals and they're all in almost all of them are in a position where they've made it to a certain level in the organization, but they're not at the top, you know? And one of the things that's always struck me with most of these interviews that I do is, is how strong they all are because you really have to be, if you, if you're going to be in HR, you can't, you can't be weak um, because you will be torn, (laughs) torn to shreds either by your employer (laughs) or by your, your employees. You know, so I guess the question that I'm really trying to ask here is how do you balance that need as a, as particularly as an HR professional to be a, a source of strength for both your leaders and your employees, um, but also sort of network or uh, use that, that vulnerability or, or open up a little bit to make things function better? I don't know if this directly answers your question or not, but... I have people ask me like, well, how, how do I get more confident with being vulnerable or how do I just increase my confidence in general? And you, you have to take one step first and, and try it on, you know, little by little, like you're, it's not like a light is going to switch and all of a sudden like, Oh, I'm uh, incredible at this. It's a, a practice. And as we do it, we get better at it and more comfortable and tuning into when I show up by admitting that I did something wrong or um, asking the question that nobody else is going to ask or whatever else, what, what am I like assuming about myself? Like if I'm telling myself that, like we were earlier, we were talking about negative stories. If I'm telling myself, oh, well, I'm going to look like a fool, that's not going to help. And you have a choice in terms of what what story you tell yourself, you know, if you tell yourself, oh, I have to be strong, I can't make a mistake, I can't do this, I can't do that, you're not going to make it any easier on yourself. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, and I'll share another idea, which was really profound for me personally, um, which is when in doubt, focus out. And so I had this moment where I was I was just, man, I was just doubting myself constantly. I had started my business. And so I was regularly consulting with the C-suite teams and giving them guidance about how they can lead more effectively and how to build stronger teams. And I I remember talking with um, a colleague about, I just don't feel like I know enough. And she looked at me and she goes, don't you have a PhD? (laughs) I was like, yeah. (laughs) And it was... (laughs) And yes, right. But it hadn't even like, I just, I noticed in that moment that I was going to constantly feel like I wanted to learn more about what I was doing and that me wanting to know more was actually this sign of perfectionism and this fear that maybe 
while I'm offering guidance or I'm, you know, because I worked in HR internally at NASA and Disney, so I, I know what it feels like to work in HR roles. I was constantly afraid that, you know, I might throw something out and they would ask me a question and I maybe wouldn't know the answer to it. And I would let that stop me from saying anything at all. And I realized that is perfectionism and that is totally, uh, you know, imposter syndrome happening. And when I shifted what I was thinking about instead of it being about, am I going to look like I really know what I'm doing? I started to think about, hey, you know what? If I can share something and it's a useful nugget and they can take it and they ask me a question, I don't know the answer. Okay. But I, I put something out there and they can bat it around for a while and they can build on it. And that was huge for me in, in growing my confidence to speak up and say things. And it was also great because I stopped I stopped focusing on the potential inadequacy and I was focusing instead on I do think this can be helpful for them, even if I don't know all of the things. So when in doubt, focus out is one of the mantras that I, I often will use for myself. Well, that's, that's great advice. Um, let's talk about how employers and HR in particular can help create a culture and environment where their employees can, can be comfortable having such a, a, an awakening, you know, where they won't be squashed right back down the second they poke their heads out. Do you have anything in like when you're thinking about poke their heads out, like what, okay. what are you? Yeah. Let's say we have a, an aspiring young woman who's, who's trying to make a splash in her meetings. Um, and she has ideas and she shares them. People don't listen or they shut her down. And so now she's, she's doubting herself, not because the ideas were bad, but because the environment wasn't created to support those ideas. That's incumbent on the employer. That's their loss as much as it is hers. They failed to create an environment where she can succeed. So HR tends to be at the front of of making those kinds of changes, of helping at least assist in the creation of those kinds of changes. How, how do they get started? Because a lot of organizations have that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have two thoughts on this, two immediate thoughts. One of them is around creating a psychologically safe environment. So the way that, that we respond, that the way that leaders respond to people when they are vulnerable, when they speak up is absolutely critical. Um, and I think it's useful for to help the workforce build skills as individuals to be more open. So for instance, using this example that you used where she spoke up and she felt like she wasn't heard. A concept that Laura and I like to use is called going meta. So it's like zooming out and pushing through the Mm. fear and saying, hey, in the meeting, not after the meeting, in the meeting, hey, I noticed when I spoke up, everybody got really quiet or whatever the observation is. That is so incredibly powerful because no one does that. Mm. No one does that. So I um, have done that. I used to work at NASA as well, and I was working most recently with all of the HR executives across the agency. And I would do that regularly, just make observations about what was happening in the virtual room, you know, COVID times. Um, And it blew their mind. Like, I'm not exaggerating because nobody does that. So it's Yes, it's on the organization, too, to create the environment. And as individuals, we can totally do more than we are already. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really good idea. It reminds me a little bit of a technique 
that I've seen when people are the butt of like a sexist joke, you know, uh, which is hardly a rarity in our society. So, you know, if, uh, if a woman is, you know, some male coworker goes up to a woman and says something, I'm not going to even make up one, something stupid. And then, you know, she gets offended or upset because it's upsetting and offensive. You know, one thing, she has a choice at that moment. One thing that I've read about what people can do is say, why, why is that funny? ask the person to explain the humor behind the comment because most of the time they aren't funny and you know the 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 laughter that the the men are experiencing is coming from from them being sexist not from any inherent humor the second you have to explain it bring it out into the open it you know it all falls apart and it's a real moment of self-reflection it sounds similar to what you're talking about yeah. So I, I, one thing that I would do in that situation, I would modify the language slightly. So my belief is that these like sexism and these microaggressions are coming from a defensive place, unintentionally, like unconsciously defensive. And so when we ask, you know, why is this happening? That can actually increase defensiveness more um, mm. than they already are. So I I would say, I recommend saying, um, when you said that, how did you want me to interpret it? You know, why did you think that was so funny to, to switch it about like, what was, what was the purpose behind that? You know, what did you want me to take away from that? Um, and, and by all means, you know, my understanding of these things is limited. You know, um, one of the things I always worry about when I do specifically interviews about women's issues is that I'm approaching it entirely wrong because I don't know anything. Oh. <laughs> I, you know, I got the imposter syndrome. It's happening quite, quite yeah. significantly. You know, so I usually just try and run with it and hope everything works out. What I'm going to do today is a little different. I want to you guys to guide the conversation a little bit more going forward because I'm just afraid I'm not asking the right questions. You know, what's the what's the natural evolution of this conversation? Where does it go next? I love that you life. said that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, I mean, yeah, because there's a couple things, you know. You even doing this interview and taking on this topic, I think, is excellent because one of the things that I really want, and I've heard this for a long time, and I want people to continue to internalize it, is, you know, sexism and the patriarchy. This is not a women's issue. This is a societal issue. And so um, so thank you, right, for leaning in yes. and, and bringing us on to have the conversation. I feel like that is excellent. And I do think that your perspective is valuable. How you're thinking about things is really important. You know, I want to pull on something that Stephanie was saying before too, around, um, you know, psychological safety. So I think when a workplace, and this is something I think that HR leaders can do when they can create some structured conversations for men and women, um, and really people of all genders to talk openly about some of this stuff. So it's the same idea that Stephanie's saying about going meta which I love it when that happens from the individual perspective, which is what she was describing. I also think when, you know, HR comes in to say, hey, we want to have some structured conversations, they invite leaders to go first. They invite leaders to to share and everybody just can share experiences. I would venture a guess. I think that it's fair to say that probably every human has has witnessed and observed sexism in the workplace and also perpetrated it. Right, because part of the symptom of the patriarchy is that women tend to have sexist tendencies as well. 
right? It's part of how we are programmed. I know for sure I have had sexist thoughts and probably said sexist things, especially when I was younger, before I really was able to think and reflect on what I was saying and, and you know, what it all meant. And so to be able to create a, a safe enough space where everybody is sharing like, oh yeah, you know, I've both witnessed it, perhaps been a, a quote victim of it. And I've also perpetrated it. And just like talking about it, making it more okay to talk about is I think really critical for us to, to push through some of what can feel awkward. Because as soon as it starts to feel like, you know, I, I don't know enough about this or I, I'm going to say something wrong. Well, maybe, I mean, and I would put wrong in quotes because what the heck does that even mean? But this is all about learning. And it's so much about individual experience. And, and to Stephanie's point from earlier, it's about individual expression. So not everybody's going to be equally offended, say, by something. And, and that's okay if you are offended. I think, you know, the invitation is be open about that. It doesn't have to be a, you know, you're terrible and you're bad and you did this awful thing. It can just say, hey, I notice I feel this. And maybe I want to set a boundary mm. with you and let you know that doesn't feel okay. Without it becoming, you know, anything around name calling and just just create the dialogue. Right. Yes. Yeah, that, that sounds exactly like the right kind of thing. I mean, it's so easy when you're in a, well, I'll say I too went through that evolution, you know, like what I just noticed sort of having an awakening when I was in college that there was a set of rules and systems that had been built inside of me that were really getting in the way of my life, you know, mm -hmm. uh, expectations around what I, what women should do for me in my life, what my role with them should be the way I was approaching dating. And it was just, you know, I just realized that just so much of it was so twisted and wrong, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, I made a decision at that point to try, try and change who I was, which worked out, you know, really well. But it was nice. also really, a, you know, I finally was able to find someone who I married to, and we have a kid together, you know, and I think things are going pretty well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but well, the, the other awareness I had with that experience was how easy it is to not have that awakening. And, mm -hmm. you know, I witnessing it amongst my, my colleagues and my, my friends. It's just these things really, the way that society, and to use that, that phrase, which is overused, but ingrains these things in you is really insidious. It's, it's quiet and it's, it's reinforced repeatedly. And you get to a point where it's easier to just go along with what you've been doing than it is to confront yourself and say, oh man, maybe I've been doing something wrong. Maybe, maybe I need to do better. And I can only imagine, and I know that that's inherent across, across the workplace, you know, in the United States. So it just becomes, it just seems overwhelming to how do you counter, how do you counter that? I know we've made a lot of progress, but how do you counter that guy who comes in and makes those, you know, asshole jokes um, or, you know, the guy that says, ah, that's just the way, way I am. I'm going to, I'm just going to keep calling everybody honey and, you know, making rude comments. It's a, it seems to me sometimes to be overwhelmingly impossible. Hmm. Well, one of our, one of our core values as a team is, um, as progress over perfection, <laughs> you know, which fits well with, you know, imposter syndrome as an overall topic. And also I think when it comes to this, like 
I do think that we're making progress. And I definitely hear you, Jim, that that some people just find it to be easier to just continue to do things as they always have and, and not change. And I think that continued conversation and continued open expression of, um, you know, what we were talking about earlier, like, hey, can you explain how you want me to interpret that? Or what is it that you want me to to take away from that joke that you just told, you know, or just calling out the the notice and the observation, the more that we are doing that, then the less it's going to be the easy route to keep doing what you're doing. It's going to become more like, uh, maybe I want to change something. And I do like to call out the system more and more. I mean, I used to be, and I still am very like focused on self as a psychologist and helping people really understand within themselves. And self-acceptance is really key for a lot of these conversations to get traction. If I, you know, Stephanie was talking about defensiveness earlier. If I believe that you're calling me a bad person or that you are, are labeling or insinuating that I am sexist or that I am a bigot or something, then I am very likely going to put a wall up and want to defend myself to tell myself and to tell you I'm a good person, I'm a good person, More. I'm a good person. And really that's not even the thing to look at. <laughs> the thing to look at is, oh, how what's this water I'm swimming in, right? Like how is the water that I've been swimming in my whole life affected me? Maybe if I can just look at, look at it through that lens, which feels slightly more objective and it stops being about black and white labels like good person, bad person. And it becomes more about, oh yeah, I guess I can see how through programming, I do have some sexist beliefs and tendencies. And I feel really excited to relearn and to challenge those things. Um, and none of this conversation, even if I say something quote wrong, it doesn't make me a bad person. And so that's part of the psychological safety too. How can we make it like, Hey, this is just, this is just kind of where we are right now. And let's talk about where we, where we'd like it to be instead. Yes. It's, it's so much easier for us to change, do differently, um, when there's not a label of good or bad. Um, because like, Laura said, it brings up those defenses. Another thing that I think is worth adding here is sometimes people have behaved this way their entire life and literally no one has ever said anything to their face. Okay. So, so in the workplace there, I can think of many, many times where I was talking to a leader and they didn't select somebody for a job or, um, they didn't hire, well, not hire. I think most of the time it was around like selecting them for a promotion. Most of the examples that are coming to mind. And then when I asked more about that, like if, did they get feedback for their behavior? The response that I received is no, but they had been behaving that way since they started working there. Um, Whether it could be like any of these behaviors that we're talking about. And so I think for a lot of people, the internal, there's, there's some fear around being really open and the internal dialogue is, is it, it isn't going to do any good anyways, or I don't know how to have this conversation and it's doing nobody any favors, nobody, you know, we're, we're taking, we might be taking the easy way out right now to not be courageous. Um, and they might not have any idea either. Um, well, that, that triggered a thought for me too. Um, Stephanie, which is, I think that it becomes easier to be open with people about their behavior and the impact. Like I can be open with somebody about the, their behavior and the impact that it had on me when I'm not judging them for it. 
and I'm mm-hmm. not telling myself in my head like that they that they're wrong or that they're bad. I think that's where we often clam up and we withhold. If I'm judging you and I'm like, oh, you're you suck and that was terrible and and you're a bad person and I'm having those kinds of really judgy thoughts, then yeah, probably anything I say to you is not going to go very well. But if I can just be self-accountable and let you know about like, hey, you know, I noticed when you said this thing, I felt this way. I don't think that's what you intended. Can we talk about it? It just becomes like nobody's right, nobody's wrong. We're just sharing experiences and then it becomes easy. It's not a silver bullet. Like somebody might still get defensive. They might still feel a little bit, you know, and if it's like, hey, you know, can we just, can we just explore it together? I feel like we could probably co-create, you know, a different way for us to communicate that's going to feel more effective. And I think then that makes it um, less scary to be open. And that's the instinct is to get really aggressive. I mean, I feel the same thing all the time. I have to stop myself constantly. Um, That passionate energy just wells up and you just want to strike out. And that's extremely human um, and extremely useless. I mean, it's just not, it doesn't help. But at the core of all this is intentionality because I've never... I've been called out a few times for dumb, dumb things I've said, not necessarily sexist, but that too on occasion. And I never meant to hurt anybody with the right. things I said and no one that I've ever called out. I mean, you have to be a monster and, and I'm sure those people are out there. Let's right. be clear. I mean, there's some monsters in the world, but most people don't want to hurt each other when they're saying the thing that they're saying you know, either they're addressing their own fear of inadequacy or they're or they're looking at the world through a lens that is old and broken and they're trying it on again. And they rarely are they really wanting genuinely to hurt somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that moment I think is really important because it's it's understanding a lot of people look at it as an excuse like, oh, I didn't mean to hurt hurt you. But if you really take a moment to pause on that that second, what you're saying is I did hurt you. You did get offended. It's, I don't want to do that. So how do I how do I make it so that that's not what happens going forward? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I want to switch the conversation to the pandemic, even though I don't really want to talk about the pandemic anymore. But <laughs> we have to. Uh, in the introduction, I said that this last year saw some real setbacks for equity in the workplace, and what I mean by that is the. Uh, extraordinary rate with which women have left the workforce, at least in the U.S. um, over the last year. The unfortunate reality of the situation is is that childcare defaults to women. It shouldn't, but that's what happens. And when so many people went remote, so many organizations closed down, someone had to take care of the kids. They weren't at school. They weren't at daycare. And that just fell on, on women more than it fell on men. And so years of progress, years of work of getting more women into the workplace, getting them to equitable positions, giving them the same shots, uh, access to the same sh- same shots everyone else has, have been undone in like a grand sweep. It's uh, really sad. It's something like four out of five people that left the workforce was, were women and almost always mm. because of the child care concern. There are also other in- endemic issues like uh, the fact that more women tend to work in the service industries and work in the, the front as frontline employees. So when, when those places got really challenged, they also were in an extra special difficult situation where, whereas I can come home and work from home, a nurse can't. And so right. if there's no one to look after kids, she has to go home 
and watch your kid. So that has been devastating. I, in my opinion, it's something that's going to be a real problem for a long time. And I've seen a lot of people meet that challenge because a lot of people reach out to me to talk about it. And I have talked to people about it as a workplace issue. How do you position yourself to hire women better and how to, to keep to keep them in the in the workplace? And it seems like it might be a little bit more than just a workplace issue. You mean, how do you solve someone's childcare issue? In a traditional workplace, if you need someone to work 40 hours, but you need their kid to be taken care of, that doesn't work. There's no, you can't do both. Um, so I'm just curious as to if you guys have been thinking about this and, and what your ideas are on real solutions, if, if there are any as we as we forge into the rest of this year and on? Well, I have a couple thoughts. <laughs> I have a couple thoughts. Um, so one is from the from the individual uh, woman's perspective, which I mean, because the, the first question that comes to mind for me that I would love to ask each of these women who have left the workforce is, did they want to? Yeah. Did they want to, or did they feel like they were doing something because they had to? Um, mm. And I do think that women are more likely to do something because they think that they have to. They think mm. um, that they're forced to. They lose sight of the fact that they have a choice. A um, lot of stories, a lot of self-limiting beliefs there. And yeah. for for the women who have left the workforce and didn't want to, that's where I would invite them to do a lot of the things we've been talking about in this conversation, which is um, openness. So be open. So those women, especially who do have partners, who can speak with their partners to to maybe push back on societal norms and and say like, hey, can we can we just figure this out? I don't actually want to leave my job. I realize that this is a tough situation, a tough environment, um, and I notice I don't want to do this. So I I don't have the perfect answer right now. But can we talk about what other options we have available to us? So I think there's at least some proportion of the women mm-hmm. who have left who have maybe felt they didn't have a choice. And so getting in touch with what they really want right. and then having the courage to be open to create something different that, that could work and allow them to continue um, to have whatever job they were hopefully enjoying. And then another thought is from the perspective of the employer, which would be, I think, doing whatever, so leaders doing whatever they can to normalize um, parental leave and like not just, you know, maternal, but paternal and, you know, normalizing more and more that maybe a man is asking to reduce his hours or a man is the one that says, Hey, you know, every day at three 30, I got to go pick up my kids. Um, so making that as normal as possible. Uh, I feel like there are probably a lot of very subtle ways that maybe women are given, you know, Oh, like you can do that. That's okay. You know, I understand. Whereas for men, there might be more of a, it's a lot of the the little subtle, even microaggressions against men, right? Around like, you're doing what? Um, And so I think normalizing men being in more of that childcare role is something that I think organizations can do as well. Yeah. I, it's, it's one of those things like in between my, my role and my wife's role, she, she's the breadwinner, you know, and if it came down to it, I would leave because it just makes sense logically. And that's something that isn't that common. You know, um, I, I'm proud of my career and, and the progress I've made, but you know, if a sacrifice needs to be made, you need to make it intelligently. And then the other thing is, you know, about 
normalizing the conversation towards parental care. I haven't experienced it personally, but I have heard people talk about it, you know, like that when men are looking after their kid, they're babysitting, mm-hmm. which is yes. really yeah. frustrating. Yes. Uh, I did have someone say it and take it back. And I was like, good, because I've been waiting right. for you. Learning. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. It's or not I'm, I'm helping helping my wife take care of my kids. Uh, no, you are taking, my care, taking care of your kids. <laughs> You're not helping your wife. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, maybe I didn't didn't create the little one, but uh, direct as as directly as my wife did. But you know, I've done all the things that she's done. It's a it's an equal thing. It has to be. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure some inequity exists on one side or the other, but you know, it's and I I think that's more common now. I don't think it, it's as common like it used to be where women raise the kids. I don't think that that's just as much of an existence as a as a as it now as it once was so we really need to start thinking about parental leave allowing flexibility i mean this is really what it comes down to i know what the solution is if, if you guys are ready to hear it the solution is allow women to work for 20 hours a week that are mothers parents for 20 hours a week give them full-time pay that's the solution and it's no one's talking about it because it's so uncomfortable. It's so in the face of what we do as a capitalist society and give them the same advancements and opportunities that you give them if they're a full-time worker, including benefits, because people don't have 40 hours. Now, if you don't have a kid in childcare or at school, you don't have 40 hours. You don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're not worth it. It doesn't mean that you can't bring a lot of value to your organization. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be getting paid. And I've talked to a lot of HR people and I've, push this idea on them and a lot of them just say well we'll let them we'll let them take as much time off as they need but it's never with pay you know not not for an extended period of time maybe they have a program that's a month or two months or three months you can work part-time and get part and get more pay usually not the full amount the solution is is we need to understand that someone that works for half the amount of time but works really hard can bring the same value to an organization as someone that works full-time and I don't know how to get people to understand that. It seems and like one of those things that's going to cost you a lot, but it won't. Over time, I guarantee you, you're going to see the ROI on that kind of expense, and that kind of expenditure. What do you guys think? I think that's true. I want to like add in one thing that Laura said earlier and make that an offering for men or women. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it should be. Totally. Yes. Absolutely. Because it doesn't, it doesn't, that will, if it's just for women, then that perpetuates the patriarchy um, idea so but but I agree with like if for instance at a previous job I worked um, I asked to go part-time and it was 32 hours rather than you know 40 or 45 or whatever it ended up being and zero of my customers could tell no one noticed because I got it. I made sure I was like, this is the boundary and I will get everything done that I need to. And I I focused in. So I agree with like that part of what you're saying. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah, And the current solution is largely get your work done, but do it with 40 hours, even though you're raising your kid at home and you're teaching them And so what a lot of people are doing, and I've heard this from a lot of folks, is they'll wake up before their kid wakes up and work. They'll Mm -hmm. have their kid situated with their breakfast and all the getting ready to school. And then they work during like their nap or their focus time. And then the parents work when their kid goes to sleep. 
which is horrific to have someone spend every minute of their free time working to accommodate an organization so that you on your side as an employer can say, well, my people are getting all their stuff done and they're doing it with the proper amount of time. It's just yeah. not sustainable. It's yeah. mon- it's kind of monstrous, actually. Um, mm. I am lucky my kid has childcare. Thank God, because I don't know how we do it. Last week we had like a COVID scare <laughs> and we had to pull her out of, out of the childcare that we have, you know, and her room is right, right next to me. Do you know how hard it is to write an article or edit an article when a three and a half year old kid is asking you to look at every little single thing you do? I mean, it's just I not do. <laughs> I had the same COVID scare too. <laughs> we, I have a three year old and it's like, this is impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> we'll really have to get out of this mindset of like, you've got to work 40 hours to be successful. And you, you have to be present for, for that entire time to achieve. Thank you so much, Laura and Stephanie, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. Listeners, we're always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast with any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general or if you just want to say hi. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.